visiting one of the busiest shopping districts in all of Taipei. And a bustling hub of youth culture. Let's get a selfie. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> He's not much of a talker, is he? <laughs> As you can see, this is one of the many pieces of public art in Taipei that injects a little bit of humor into our daily lives. And today, for April Fool's Day, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of Taiwan. And we're going to start with a new story that seems almost like an April Fool's joke. It's the Taiwanese-operated boat that was blocking the Suez Canal. Leslie Lau is going to tell you how the internet responded. We'll also show you how big the boat would look if it dropped anchor right in the middle of Taipei. <laughs> and later on, reporter Stash Butler heads to a comedy club to find out where Taiwan gets its special sense of humor. I'm Natalie So, and I'm Andrew Ryan, and this is Taiwan Insider. It took 10 years to build the Suez Canal and just a matter of minutes to plug it up. Right. Of course, we're talking about the Ever Given, which is this massive container ship that's operated by the Taiwanese company Evergreen. So how big is this boat? Well, this is what it would look like if it dropped anchor in the middle of Taipei. The tip of the boat is near the Evergreen Museum and it was stretched all the way to the presidential office building. So as you can see, the Evergreen Museum is actually behind the East Gate, which is just behind us. Now, if you plunged the boat down right in front of the East Gate and walked all the way to the presidential office building, how far would it be? Come with us. We're going to show you. It's almost as long as the longest ship in service. In fact, it's only a fraction of a centimeter shorter than the longest one. It's amazing. And, and actually, the boat is wider than this road. Now, fortunately, the boat has been freed. However, there were two more evergreen incidents just this past week. We saw photos of a massive truck blocking a highway in Nanjing, China last weekend. And another container ship, the Ever Gentle. Yes, that's its real name got hit by a crane at Taipei Harbor. So not a great week for Evergreen? No, not at all. I love those boat names, though. Ever Gentle. There's another one called Ever Genius. Ah, I like that one. <laughs> well, of course, this is a serious matter, and it has cost a lot of money. But as you can imagine, the Internet responded with humor. Here's a rundown of all the memes with Leslie Liao in Hashtag Taiwan. The biggest story this week is the Suez Canal. Now, for those of you going, Suez Canal? What happened at the Suez Canal? What's the Suez Canal? Then I'm comfortable saying you don't watch the news. Here's what happened. A skyscraper-sized ship called the Evergiven veered sideways while traversing the Suez Canal. It got stuck and clogged a major trade artery for six days. It was estimated that the world lost 9.6 billion US dollars in trade volume for every day the ship was stuck. Now, some of you might be wondering what a ship stuck in Egypt has to do with Taiwan, and I'll tell you. 
It's Japanese-owned, Taiwanese-operated, registered in Panama, and piloted by an Indian crew. <laughs> I feel bad for the lawyer who needs to figure out who's responsible. You probably already know that the ship is no longer stuck. My source, IsTheShipStillStuck.com, says the Ever Given was stuck for 6 days, 3 hours, and 38 minutes, costing about 59 billion US dollars in trade. Now, losing 59 billion of anything is no laughing matter. But when it comes to setups for jokes, this may be the best one ever given. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll be here all week, don't forget to tip your waiters. NPR reporter Camilla Dominowski tweeted, asking for stupid ideas to solve the problem. For example, she proposed getting many helicopters to lift one end of the boat. Others jumped in with impractical ideas, like shoving a giant cotton swab up the canal, using industrial-grade lubricant, or putting a ramp over the Ever Given to let other ships jump over it. Then pop culture came to the rescue with people taking ideas from Disney, Godzilla, and cartoons to solve the problem. Other internet users, however, took comfort in the fact that they weren't the ones that clogged the canal. The Higgs boat Swain tweeted, Good news for today. Whatever happens, at least you're not the guy who got his boat stuck in the Suez Canal and broke maritime shipping. And another meme says, you may make mistakes, but at least they're usually not we can see your mistake from space bad. But the strangest part about this whole ordeal is how much people related to a ship stuck in a canal. A bunch of images of builders trying to dislodge the ever given surfaced, and people began using those images as metaphors to comment on their own work ethic and well-being. For example, here the giant ship is labeled the incessant crushing weight of existence. Next to it is a tiny tractor labeled drinking exactly two beers. You might think that people were relieved when the ship started moving again, but no, actually people were sad to see it go. New memes are constantly surfacing. The last three weeks have been really eventful, but for those who need a refresher, have a look at this meme. It says, Taiwan in 1971. We left the UN and are very sad. However, Taiwan in 2021 is more like we have TSMC and yummy pineapples. Love salmon and block the Suez Canal. What a difference 30 years makes. Can you imagine where Taiwan will be in the next 30 years? We're going to be blocking off space canals, tell you what. All the way up in outer space, disrupting intergalactic trade. Now, that would take a pretty huge vehicle to block off traffic in space. Yeah, I know. Seriously. I love those memes. Leslie always has some good memes for us, He sure he? does. So what makes Taiwan a good place for comedy? Well, Taiwan Insider's Stash Butler went to a comedy club to find out. Taiwan is a funny place full of funny people. But what makes it a special place to do comedy? To find out more, I decided to head to 2-3 Comedy in Taipei. It's the center of a new boom in stand-up comedy. I asked people what brought them here. Uh, Brian. Brian. A lot of them said it's down to Brian Tsung. He was the star of an incredibly popular American-style comedy show that began on YouTube in 2018. And it was him that set up 2-3 Comedy in the first place. But I wanted the answer to a bigger question. What makes comedy in Taiwan different from anywhere else? And I think you just get a good mix of people coming here through too. Like uh, some of the funniest like Taiwanese comedians I've seen were performing in the English side. I, it's honestly it's quite international, uh, more so than maybe I expected when I first came here. I've only been here a couple years. I came away from 2-3 with the impression that the diversity of audiences and performers might hold the key to understanding comedy in Taiwan. And to learn more about both culture and comedy, I knew just where to go. 
The following morning brought me to the Kishu-an Forest of Literature, an old Japanese restaurant, to an event by Taiwan Next Gen Foundation on art and multilingualism. It was a fascinating experience, and the highlight for me was a performance by Formosa Improv Group, or FIG. They've been performing improv comedy in multiple languages for almost three years now. The climax of the show included segments in four languages, Mandarin, English, Taiwanese, and French. I spoke to two of the group's performers, Diana and William, about what they've learned performing in different languages. Uh, I think now it's becoming more inclusive. I see more Taiwanese people getting involved in what is improv and what is stand-up comedy, uh, whereas maybe before it was more uh, foreigners heavy because that was part of their culture. I feel like Taiwan is uh, uh, brings kind of all sorts of different people and Taiwanese people uh, and kind of pushes them together. Well, personally, for me, performing in both languages is quite uh, challenging. Confusion. You're very confused recently. I see a lot of signs everywhere. We can have more signs. <laughs> my first language is Spanish, a um, native language, so Chinese and English are not my, you know, my first language. But I'm trying to learn. Uh, it's definitely challenging, not only because of the language, but because of the culture. Some terms don't translate to either culture, so trying to make it as inclusive and as diversified as possible is always really fun for the audience. Spirits, what is her professional future? <laughs> oh, you will buy a in the previous groups that I've been in, we've been extremely mortified uh, for the non-Taiwanese members like to perform in Chinese. We'd be like, oh my goodness. But um, we found that uh, performing in both languages and especially in Chinese, like um, the audience is very, very, very forgiving and has a great time when we use Chinese. And, and and so there is a there is a Taiwanese uh, sense of humor, but it's it's evolving faster than ever now in its own direction, which is really which is really fun. I think because uh, Taiwan is so welcoming to all kinds of different arts, and also it's quite diversified. Anybody speaking any language, we can all communicate with each other. Like improv, it doesn't necessarily take a high level of, of language proficiency, but also you know using your body and the um, concept of yes and. So I think uh, Taiwan overall is very, very welcoming. For me, here is where it all started to make sense. Sitting in a Japanese colonial era building with an audience from all over the world, laughing at comedy in languages I don't even speak. If anything makes Taiwan's comedy special, it has to be that unique mix of cultures and people. And what's even more exciting? For Taiwan's comedy scene, I know this is just the beginning. You know, I think Stash has a great point there. Whenever different cultures come together, I mean, there are endless opportunities That's for comedy. That's true. It gives you new perspectives on life, right? Yes, and I've certainly done some very silly things <laughs> trying to learn Chinese. I can imagine. <laughs> Before we leave you today, a look at some other stories that are on our radar. The Taiwan Palau travel bubble is now in place. 
Palauan President Surangal Whips Jr. was on the first flight from Taipei to Palau on Thursday at the end of a five-day state visit to Taiwan. The president was traveling with the first batch of Taiwanese tourists looking to take advantage of the reduced COVID restrictions. But travel agencies are reporting poor sales on trips to Palau, with bookings below 50% capacity. They blame high prices and complicated COVID regulations. Taiwan saw yet another maritime accident this week, though thankfully not quite on the scale of the ever-givens blocking of the Suez Canal. A massive new fishing vessel capsized in the southern port city of Kaohsiung just as it was setting out on its maiden voyage. Fortunately, no one was injured, and the boat was tugged back to harbor. Taipei's iconic Grand Hotel has opened up a second secret tunnel to the public. The hotel opened the West Wing in 2019, and now it's opened up the East Wing as well. The tunnels were built to allow VIPs to escape in case of emergency at a time of Cold War tensions. They're chock full of special design features that make it harder for pursuers to shoot at the SKPs. There's a fungus among us, and a delicious one at that. Taiwan has its own recently discovered species of white truffle. The Taiwan Forestry Research Institute bets that techniques it's developed will allow commercial production to start within a decade, perhaps putting Taiwanese truffles on a dinner plate near you. And our final question of the day, what item from everyday life in Taiwan would be great for a comedy? Hmm... Leslie? Well, I don't know how everyday it is, but I do have a little something here that people in Taiwan use often. Ah, it's a microphone, yes. and you guys have used this microphone very often. Um, but you know what? This is a Bluetooth microphone, which I believe is a Taiwanese invention. Wow. And uh, this is good for all kinds of shenaniganery. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Very good at karaoke. <laughs> get, get a load of this, guys. I'm a singer. Get a load of this. I'm a stand-up comedian. Get a load of this. I'm the president giving the State of the Union address. I don't know about that. I don't know, but uh, that is my choice. The microphone, just a versatile piece of comedy or entertainment. Very nice. Very good. How about you, Andrew? Oh, you guys are going to love this. Ta-da! What is that? Oh, it is a scalp massager. I've seen you use this in the office. It was hilarious. Oh, it's so This is good. a Taiwanese thing. It's a Taiwanese thing. Oh, is it very much so? the whole thing? That yeah, seems yeah, yeah, really, yeah. like, pretty cool. Oh, man, yeah. that, does, that does look comfortable, though. You can I use it. Oh, my gosh. You can Don't use get it, it up your, your nose or anything. Too, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> See, rife with comedy. What about you, Natalie? Okay. I got something here that's actually delicious. Ooh. It's, um... Mochi oh, with wow. boba inside. It's soft on the inside. <laughs> no, soft on the outside. Yes. And sticky on the inside. And I always thought it'd be great for throwing out. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, no. You know what? I would be mad. I would be mad. This is delicious. So. Oh, thank you very much. Boba inside. Ooh. Man down. Man down. Well, there you go. Those are some things you can use in everyday life or in your, uh, I guess, in your comedy if you want. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us for Taiwan Insider. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, and leave a comment and subscribe. And we would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Leo. I'm Andrew Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week. Yeah.
，现在几点了 ？Sorry， 我忘了代表。我正在等人呢，我正在等一个生命。喜欢你就是起点，每个 wish 梦会实现。Thursday, Friday, Saturday. 
This is Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. U.S.-China relations have been rocky lately, and that matters to Taiwan, as Taiwan is a major point of contention between the two superpowers. Taiwan, of course, has a very close economic relationship with both China and the U.S., and it is under threat from China, which claims Taiwan as its own, whereas it looks to the U.S. for help for defending itself. So U.S.-China relations are very important to Taiwan. Today we look at recent issues in U.S.-China relations from Xinjiang Cotton to the 2 plus 2 meeting of top U.S. and Chinese officials in Alaska. Voice of America White House correspondent Huang Yaoyi gives us his analysis from Washington, D.C. Huang first tells us about how Xinjiang Cotton is affecting U.S.-China ties. The U.S. is very concerned about cotton production in Xinjiang. It is a big issue in global trade and business. China is now boycotting some famous brands known in the U.S., such as H&M and the American brand Nike. So last week, President Joe Biden held his first live and public press conference, and he was asked about the issue of forced labor and Xinjiang cotton. He was asked if the U.S. was going to ban or limit the import of such goods. The U.S. has laws against importing products made with labor abuses abroad. Now, Biden replied by saying these are problems that must be solved. But he said that these issues are also a part of a bigger and more complicated U.S.-China relationship. Now, the U.S. has already boycotted some Chinese officials and companies due to the Xinjiang cotton problem. The reasons for the boycott are human rights abuses, suppression of freedom of religion, and forcing Uyghurs into concentration camps and forced labor. These issues are all related to Xinjiang cotton. Now, top U.S. and Chinese officials recently held their first official meeting in Alaska. Voice of America White House correspondent Huang Yaoyi tells us his views on that important meeting. Now, before U.S. officials met with Chinese officials in their 2 plus 2 meeting in Alaska, the U.S. already decided to boycott China regarding the Hong Kong National Security Act. Then, after the meeting, the U.S. decided to boycott China regarding Xinjiang. So those two boycotts happened right before and after the Alaska meeting. So Biden has already drawn a red line with China. He is telling them that they cannot tolerate those kinds of actions. But on issues where both sides can benefit, such as environmental issues, that's a different story. Now, Biden cares about the environment and China has had major pollution problems that have given them a lot of trouble, such as the recent sandstorm. So when the U.S. discusses issues like this with China, he can tell them that they will benefit too. 
But if you're talking about Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, or Xinjiang, the U.S. cannot tolerate China's behavior. It's not just President Biden, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and the National Security Advisors have all expressed the same thing. Now, in the past, Biden has been accused of being soft on China. So the world is curious how President Biden will deal with China. White House correspondent Huang Yaoyi has some insights into Biden's China policy. Remember when we discussed that when people ask Biden about his China policy, he responds by saying they need to take time to strategize? People need to be patient. But last week, in his first public press conference, Biden said, I've known Xi Jinping for a long time. I'm very familiar with him. In his eight years as vice president, he spent more time with Xi than any other head of state. He says he knows Xi well and that there is not a democratic bone in his body. He says that Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin are the same in that they believe that you need a totalitarian government to hold the future. So we can see that Biden has clarity. He doesn't have any illusions about China and its government. He doesn't have any fantasies. He says they know their differences and conflicts and in what areas they can cooperate and which areas will have conflict. Biden also said that he is going to give China pressure. Biden said he will use a different approach than Trump. Trump used a host of boycotts and verbal attacks, while Biden said he is going to forge an alliance of democratic countries. That includes a summit that he will host in Washington, D.C. of democratic allies. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said they would invite Taiwan to participate. So, Biden is going to be a leader and forerunner in protecting democratic values. Then, he will form an alliance with other democratic countries. That way, they will have chips on the table when talking with China. We can see that Biden is taking his time to carefully formulate a strategy and an alliance uh, to deal with China. Voice of America White House correspondent Wang Yaoyi also had some observations about the U.S.-China trade relationship. Another thing I observed regarding the Alaska meeting is that talks didn't start right away. Now, remember earlier in the U.S.-China trade relationship when there was a trade war and China's top trade negotiator Liu He came to the U.S. to talk with President Trump? It was strange that he could go straight to Trump and talk. In those talks, China agreed to buy more goods from the U.S., and they also agreed that the two sides would meet every six months. But it's been eight months, and China's top negotiator Liu He and the U.S.'s trade representative Catherine Tai have not yet met. And the U.S. has said that they don't have any plans to meet. Last week was Tai's first week in office. In her first week, she phoned the trade representatives or economic ministers of 14 countries, but she didn't call Liu. So we can see that the U.S. attitude is to take it slow. Biden wants to take care of the domestic situation and forge ties with his allies before he faces China. 
You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I am Natalie So. We are hearing from the Voice of America White House correspondent Huang Yaoyi about recent issues in U.S.-China relations. Next, Huang will tell us how the pandemic is affecting U.S.'s foreign relations and health concerns about President Biden. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I am Natalie So. Voice of America White House correspondent Huang Yao Yi is giving us his analysis of recent issues in U.S.-China relations. And he describes how the United States is building up its foreign alliances to be able to deal with China from a position of strength. The Democratic summit will take place at the end of the year, and that will be an important achievement. After that, a clearer strategy may appear. Some people may be wondering why the U.S. has to wait until the end of the year. Why are they so slow? Well, another big factor is the pandemic. It's really hard to have meetings at this time. Japan's Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga is the first foreign leader that Biden will meet, and Suga will visit the White House. And there are a lot of hoops you need to go through now getting a negative COVID test, going through a travel bubble, and the like. We definitely don't want to see the disease spread due to a high-level visit. So containing the pandemic has been President Biden's biggest priority. So the reason many things are running slowly is due to the pandemic and other preparations. Recently, many people around the world have seen footage of U.S. President Joe Biden stumbling three times in a row as he was ascending the stairs of Air Force One. This has led to talk and concerns about his health. Huang actually asked the White House about Biden's next health checkup. I've asked the White House about the routine health checkup that presidents go through when they come into office at the Walter Reed Hospital. The last time Biden publicized his health checkup was when he announced he was running for president. So he was asked that question during the press conference, and Biden said that they are planning another health checkup and they would make the results public. I asked them when the health checkup would take place, but they didn't give a specific date. There have also been some concerns and talk about how mentally fit Joe Biden is, as he often has a stuttering problem. And Huang also elaborates on that concern. About his stuttering problem, when Biden accepted the Democratic nomination, he told everyone that he was born with a stuttering problem. It was pretty serious. He's had many opportunities to interact with all types of people, 
young and old, male and female. And he did talk once with a child who had a serious stuttering problem. Now, this child sometimes is not able to speak when he wants to. It just doesn't come out. For kids like him, they have thoughts in their brains, and when they want to say them, sometimes they get stuck and it just doesn't come out. So Biden gave him a lot of tips, such as if you can imagine yourself singing your thoughts, that might help you get them out more smoothly. But Biden has mentioned many times that stuttering is a big problem for him. And sometimes he'll make mistakes. One time he said that people would get vaccinated within 100 days, and just a few moments later he said 10 days. I asked White House officials which he meant, and they said he meant 10 days. So sometimes his words are different than his thoughts. Sometimes you can notice his expression on his face, like he's thinking about something. He's probably trying very hard to get his thoughts out clearly. That's because of his stuttering problem. So what did the White House have to say about Biden falling on the stairs three times in a row? This is what Huang told us. People are, of course, very concerned about his falls on the Air Force One stairway. A White House reporter said, You've been with us on these trips. You know that the Air Force One stairway is not an easy one to climb. So that's how they reacted to it. But, of course, we're all concerned and have asked about the president's health. It looks like he's fine. The White House is very strict with pandemic measures. They are afraid that COVID-19 will get into the White House. So all of us White House correspondents have to test negative for COVID that day before going into the White House. But Trump didn't have such a rule. But when Biden came into office, he said that all reporters need to take COVID tests before going into the White House. Every time, we get a bracelet, a different color one each day. So I've kept my bracelets and wrote the date on each of them. They are my souvenirs. They also ask if we have symptoms and take our temperature before each test. It takes time to get the test result, so in the morning I get my COVID test at the White House. And we're all working at home here in the U.S., so then I go home to work, and then when the test result is out, I go back to the White House. That is Voice of America White House correspondent Huang Yaoyi telling us about the latest of his analysis on U.S.-China relations and U.S. foreign policy, and also the health of U.S. President Joe Biden. Those are all issues that people in Taiwan are concerned about, as the U.S. is Taiwan's most important ally. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. science and tech news it's stash butler with the download welcome to the download a brand new show from radio taiwan international covering all the latest developments in science and technology i'm your host stash butler and i'll be taking you through everything you need to know 
In this episode, we're going to be looking at the controversy surrounding the Datan gas terminal in northern Taiwan. What's the story? Why is the government building it? And why are people unhappy about it? All of that and more coming up on The Download. So, what's going on here? Taiwan's state-owned CPC Corporation is building a liquefied natural gas terminal in Taoyue in northern Taiwan. It'll be used to deliver gas to a nearby power station called the Datan Power Plant. And it's all part of the government's plan to increase gas power to 50% of Taiwan's total energy supply by 2025. But protesters want to stop the construction because they're building it on an ancient algal reef. The government says it's carried out environmental assessments and made modifications, but that hasn't satisfied opponents of the terminal. And to make matters more complicated, Taiwan's opposition party, the KMT, have waded in on the fight on the side of the protesters. They've gathered signatures for a national referendum on the issue. But why is the government building more fossil fuel infrastructure in 2021? And how did this fight get political? Confused? So am I. I spoke to Clara Gillespie from the National Bureau of Asian Research to get the bigger picture. Today we're talking about this uh, Datan gas terminal, which is going to be built by an existing gas power plant right in in Taoyuan in northern Taiwan. And there's been a lot of controversy around it. But the government is fairly standing by this project, saying they've scaled back the project. They're saying that they've carried out the necessary kind of checks and so on. So, But what makes this terminal so important to Taiwan's energy strategy? It's a couple of different things. So one is just that broader question of where natural gas fits into Taiwan's energy mix in general. And the answer is, it's already an important part of the energy mix. But between now and 2025, when the nuclear phase out is supposed to occur, it's disproportionately what's going to make up that gap that uh, comes out of that zero carbon emission baseload power. Stretching out to 2050, though, I think what surprises some people is that natural gas is still expected to play a pretty prominent role in Taiwan's electricity mix. And the studies and the statistics for that vary. It's anywhere between, well, maybe it'll be about 30% of the mix or possibly still 50% of the mix. But importantly, most of those scenarios still show that growing versus where we are today. And where we are today and getting to the terminal in particular is that Taiwan has a real bottleneck in terms of its LNG infrastructure. The existing two terminals that are at play are already operating at, I think, over 100% of their nameplate capacity, uh, which starts to create real strains as you stretch that out. Now, this third terminal is not the only one in construction, but it is the closest to finalization of um, being able to import more LNG. And the CPC and others have noted their concerns that if this project is delayed, you're going to face that gap again in how quickly other terminals can be scaled up. And even with those, if it's sufficient to overcome that bottleneck. Mm. And so part of this is partly down to, we're talking about kind of denuclearizing Taiwan as well. So how how does that tie in? Uh, It ties in very directly. (laughs) I mean, part of the reason that Taiwan is already operating at this over 100% capacity on LNG imports is just how quickly 
quickly it's had to scale up on energy sources that are not nuclear. So up until 2016, nuclear was not only an important part of Taiwan's baseload power, but it was anticipated to potentially be a growing share. When you suddenly go to zero on that, you of course have bigger ambitions for what you want to do on wind and solar. But I think in 2016, Taiwan was still about 4% of the energy coming from wind and solar. So it has a huge curve to meet, which inevitably means if you're replacing nuclear, is that going to be some amount of either natural gas or coal? A lot of governments have viewed gas as this kind of transition, this kind yeah. of you know moving from coal and stuff to using gas and then eventually transitioning to, to something greener. Yeah. But we're also seeing that there are some countries and where the opposition to this kind of this strategy is growing, but Taiwan is still pushing ahead with gas. Is that still is it still the best bet, do you think, for Taiwan? I think it's part of a necessary bet. Taiwan, in many ways, has a lot of options for what it could do on its energy mix, but all of them involve some degree of challenge. One of the questions that is being raised is, could there be less of a push on LNG by returning to nuclear? And in some ways, Taiwan is very much in a similar situation to what you see in South Korea and Japan, both of which face that exact same question in the aftermath of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. Both Japan and South Korea outlined a policy close to what Taiwan has said in the total uh, drawdown of nuclear and have backed away from it. So they've decided that that's actually not the best way forward, that actually nuclear is nuclear energy is part of the way to, to for at a least transition. to some extent and right. at least for some period. So first, you, you referred to the 2025 date, and that's significant because the government's outlined this policy where they want to see, if I remember correctly, it's 2030-50 policy, which means 20% of power from renewable sources, 30% from coal, and 50% from natural gas by 2025. So how, how close do you think they are to hitting that target? I mean, it comes exactly back to the terminal because the big bottleneck is can you get to 50% LNG with the existing import infrastructure? Taiwan does not have indigenous resources for natural gas, or at least not any on any notable scale. So all of that has to come in through imports. Right now, I think as of 2019, Taiwan is past that 30% mark on LNG as part of the electricity mix. So it's getting closer, but that's not 50% by any measure. And if you are already operating at capacity, something has to change to really be on target. I mean, Taiwan is so dependent on imports for, for its energy. So where is it getting this natural gas from? A couple different suppliers now and a couple projected to play more significant roles in the long term. Now, I believe the top three most important importers for Taiwan are Australia, Qatar, and Malaysia. Uh, the United States is a growing location for where Taiwan is getting some of its natural gas that's projected to continue. So I, I, I've seen some sort of charts showing that, for example, Taiwan's trying to move away from gas from the Middle East, partly out of security concerns there. So where's it moving that interest towards if it's away from countries like Qatar? A couple of different places, including, I think, relatively more on Australia, which has had new gas resources come online in the last few years, as well as the United States. Other countries have made a bigger push on potential Russian gas. I have not seen Taiwan match that with the same appetite. With the 2050 date that the government, you, I mean, you're talking about projections yeah. from 2050. So they're still not seeing renewables like wind and solar hitting a uh, 20% or they are seeing it hit, hit 20%, but just still not playing that integral part and uh, in replacing the carbon emitters. More of 
of the latter. Mm. If you pull back a little bit on the global picture, a lot of countries have been struggling to hit some of their more ambitious targets for wind and solar. And I say this because in some ways, Taiwan is a really positive story, especially with wind, where the country has really been punching above its weight globally. But it's not just scaling up wind and solar. It's also what you're drawing down. And so the challenge is not just pushing out natural gas, but it's also how you deal with nuclear being completely gone. And ideally in that 2050 scenario, uh, also getting coal down to zero. So it's an incredible task on top of already what you've had, I think, in the last years is Taiwan, you know, first doubling its share of uh, wind and solar in its electricity mix, and now looking to do that several times over again in what's not that long of a window. That was Clara Gillespie from the National Bureau of Asian Research. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, tune in to find out why Clara thinks that the risk of blackouts in northern Taiwan is very real. That's next week with me, Stash Butler, on The Download. This is Highlights, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. So what makes Taiwan a good place for comedy? Well, Taiwan Insider's Stash Butler went to a comedy club to find out. Taiwan is a funny place full of funny people. But what makes it a special place to do comedy? To find out more, I decided to head to 2-3 Comedy in Taipei. It's the center of a new boom in stand-up comedy. I asked people what brought them here. Uh, Brian. Brian. A lot of them said it's down to Brian Tung. He was the star of an incredibly popular American-style comedy show that began on YouTube in 2018. And it was him that set up 2-3 Comedy in the first place. But I want the answer to a bigger question. What makes comedy in Taiwan different from anywhere else? And I think you just got a good mix of people coming here through too. Like uh, some of the funniest like Taiwanese comedians I've seen were performing in the English side. I, it's honestly it's quite international, uh, more so than maybe I expected when I first came here. I've only been here a couple years. I came away from 2-3 with the impression that the diversity of audiences and performers might hold the key to understanding comedy in Taiwan. And to learn more about both culture and comedy, I knew just where to go. The following morning brought me to the Kishu'an Forest of Literature, an old Japanese restaurant, to an event by Taiwan Next Gen Foundation on art and multilingualism. It was a fascinating experience, and the highlight for me was a performance by Formosa Improv Group, or FIG. They've been performing improv comedy in multiple languages for almost three years now. Hey, kids, grab a bite ahead. Oh, we're holding 
climax of the show included segments in four languages. Mandarin, English, Taiwanese, and French. I spoke to two of the group's performers, Diana and William, about what they've learned performing in different languages. Uh, I think now it's becoming more inclusive. I see more Taiwanese people getting involved in what is improv and what is stand-up comedy, uh, whereas maybe before it was more uh, foreigners heavy because that was part of their culture. I feel like Taiwan is uh, uh, brings kind of all sorts of different people and Taiwanese people uh, and kind of pushes them together. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.